Oh, let's talk about having a happy life from Psalm 1. You've probably seen this a few times um, or heard this a few times in the last week or so. Happy New Year to you. And when we say that or hear that, we know that it's a wish that people are extending to us um, or that we're extending to others. But when you think about it, that's what we really all want. We're not guaranteed that. But how do we have a happy new year? Is it going to be because we make resolutions? Usually that makes us unhappy because we break them by February. Is it going to be because we discipline ourselves, work harder, uh, or just count on some good luck? Is it going to be because of government policies? What makes it a happy new year for us this year? Psalm 1 starts out with the words, uh, Blessed, blessed, and almost every version, I think, except maybe some of the looser paraphrases, might say happy, because that word in the Hebrew language has the idea, and it's sometimes translated happy, meaning fortunate. It's a life that is living under the blessing of God so that it's not just a temporary happiness like you get the thrill from a roller coaster or when your, your child or grandchild scores a goal or hits a double. It's not that kind of happiness. It's a life of, of prospering under God's blessings. That's why he says, and mostly translates it, blessed. So it's a promise here that we have. If, if we can experience this blessing, if we live a certain way and do a certain thing, which we're going to talk about. In other words, he's saying how truly happy is somebody who does this. And... Uh, it has to do with our relationship to God's Word. God's Word changes people's lives. And that's why he talks about it here, and he gets, gets to it really uh, in verse 2. Back in the 4th century, uh, we call him St. Augustine now, but he was no saint. He really was raised up quite a profligate and uh, an immoral person in his youth. One day, he was sitting in a garden with a friend, and he was literally crying about his sins. He felt the weight of his sins upon him. He felt the disfavor of God upon him, and he was in despair. And he heard a voice of a child in a garden across the wall next to him saying, take up and read. Take up and read. And he thought to himself, what game is that that they're playing where the line is take up and read? I've never heard that before. It must only mean, and he saw next to his friend was a scroll. It must only mean take up this scroll, which he knew to be the Bible, and read it. And so he unwrapped it, and he opened it to Romans 13, 13 through 14. You can look that up sometime. And he read the words about putting off uncleanness and clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately he felt a great sense of relief. And this was the answer for his guilt and for his sin and his problems and for his life. And he, and he, he just suddenly was overcome with joy. And he went in his side and he shared it with his mother and his mother leaped for joy because she'd been praying for him. He read the word of God, the voice of a little child telling him to read, and his life dramatically changed. And he became a theologian, 
uh, upon which, from which we have prospered much. We don't agree with everything he eventually taught, but uh, he really laid the base for a lot of theology and knowledge because he read the Bible. The Barna Research Study Group, you might have heard them, they do a lot of polls and surveys, and I have the 21 statistics. But of, in the United States, about a third of our residents in the United States read the Bible once a week or more. Half read the Bible less than twice a year or never. In between these two extremes, about 16% uh, read the Bible more than twice a year, but not on a weekly basis, they found. And overall, one in six adults in the United States, that's 16%, reads the Bible most days during the week. Only 16% read the Bibles most reads the Bible most days during the week. I don't know if you're encouraged or discouraged by, by that, but uh, that's not that many. Even though we have more who claim the name of Christ, not that many are reading their Bibles. So we come to Psalm 1 because it talks about the importance of that. Psalm 1 is placed at the beginning of the Psalms. That's a profound statement, isn't it? 150 psalms, but it's important to notice that because it serves kind of as an introduction to the 150 psalms that follow. It really is a basis for wisdom literature because it shows us the centrality of God's word and the wisdom that comes from it for all of life. And you'll find that kind of theme traced throughout the psalms, the importance of God's words, especially when you get to Psalm 119, of course. And then uh, God's word is so important in the Proverbs. And then we also find in Psalm 1 this great contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous that extends through a lot of the wisdom literature. You know, you'll be reading the Psalms and it tells about the blessings of the godly man and then the ungodly person, you know, who's doomed. Or you'll read about the ungodly person first and later on the author will talk about the blessings of being a godly person. But that contrast runs all through the Psalms. Psalm 1 is an excellent psalm to introduce the Psalms to us and that's why I think it falls in this very important first slot. So what we see there is the starting, it starts with uh, the word blessed. Blessed is the man, woman, child, person, of course it's used generically, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now what we see here is a progression. Um, and this progression is telling us to stay far from evil influences. And you see these three steps, and there really seem to be three steps down because, first of all, you have someone who's walking along. He's walking in the counsel of the ungodly. It shows that he has contact with the ungodly person and is willing to entertain them to some degree and go in the same direction. But then it says he stands in the path of sinners. The word sinners, uh, the first word, the ungodly, speaks of those who are loosened from God, literally, kind of, uh, so they're kind of aloof from God. The second word, sinners, speaks of those who are actively sinning. So now the person is standing or positioning himself with those who are actively sinning. But it goes worse than that because now he sits down and feels comfortable with them, with those who are called scornful or um, scorners in some versions, those who are scorners or scornful. Uh, and we might, if we want to alliterate, we could say now there's a conspiracy against God. He joins with those who mock God 
and conspire against him. So keep yourself far from evil influences lest they have an influence upon us. Proverbs 21, 24 says, A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. I think using the same word as that third category there. He acts with arrogant pride. Here's a paraphrase I found of this verse that I really like. Paraphrases are useful sometimes as commentaries. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the state of mind which characterizes the ungodly, much less that he should associate with the vicious life of sinners or even delight in the company of those who scoff at things of God. I think most people turn from God to an evil way a little bit at a time. It's not usually so pronounced. We turn to God sometimes in an instant, but we don't usually turn to evil that way, do we? It's more of a, a little bit at a time being with the wrong people and starting to adopt their ways, and we're influenced by them. We're influenced by the company we keep if we hang around them long enough, if we position ourselves long enough, if we sit down and identify with them. In our yard, being out in the county, we have a septic system you know, that sprays water. We don't, we're not on a city a sewage system. Oh, and every couple of years, those septic heads, you know, this one I think I ran over with the mower. <laughs> Whatever. So you got to dig way down, and it's always muddy. You got to get way down in that mud to replace that, that shower head. And when I do that, I've learned to wear gloves because if I don't wear gloves, the, my hands get all muddy with that sewery goop, and it gets under my fingernails. But my gloves get awful muddy. What I've noticed is that the mud never gets glovey. So it's a lesson for us, right? If it's easier to be influenced by evil sometimes than it is for evil to be influenced by good. And if we associate with that which is wrong, it's going to rub off on us. We're going to get muddy. Lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas is another way of putting it. And then he says in verse 2, what we really want to emphasize today, stay close to God's word. Stay close to God's word and its life-changing power. And this is how he says it. But his delight, the one who avoids evil and distances himself from evil, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. There's a contrast here. In fact, it's even an emphasis because the law is put at the beginning of the sentence, but in his law he delights, is how the author is really saying that. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So the way the writ it is written, there's a real emphasis on the law. Now the word law here is just a synonym for the word of God. You'll find that often used, especially, for example, if you were to turn to Psalm 119, which you don't need to do, and, and look there, you'll see all these different synonyms for the word of God, commandments, uh, precepts, and so forth. And so when he says his delight is in the law of the Lord, he's simply saying he delights in God's word. He has an attitude that just can't wait to look and get into God's word. As like, a, like a young lover in love with someone who gets a love letter and just can't wait to tear into it and reads it over and over again. I'm reading a, biography, I'm reading a, uh, a book now about a woman who fell in love with a man 
who discovered the source of the Nile River. Going too far with the details. But she, she loved him for years, but she finally got a letter from him. She hung it up in her room and read it every day. Every day. That's the kind of attitude the author is talking about, delighting yourself in the Lord. Like reading that love letter or craving bluebell after you've sworn off sugar for a month. <laughs> Whatever your resolution is about that and ice cream. I once heard of a man who didn't have any arms, who didn't have any vision. He learned to read Braille with his tongue so that he could read the Bible. That's what I call craving God's word and delighting in it. Listen to the words of Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. By the way, do you notice the way he's using the synonyms, precepts, commandments, um, uh, and law there? What the author is saying is, you know, the word of God has, has, has so blessed me by my meditation in it that uh, I'm, I'm wiser than my enemies. They're trying to trick me and fool me, but I'm ahead of the game. And my teachers, I have more understanding than them. They think they're teaching me, but I have a greater understanding. That could apply in the church or outside the church. And I understand more than the ancients or elders the spiritual leaders. You know, really, a young person in the church who has a deeper understanding of the Word of God can have greater understanding than the elders of the church if they understand the Word of God. He's not forced. He's not compelled. He's not guilted into studying the Bible or reading it. It's not an assignment. It's not just homework for him. It's just pure delight that he has to exclaim, Oh, how I love thy law. That's just emotion. Now, some people might say, oh, you Christians, you just worship the Bible. We're not talking about that here. Why do we elevate the Bible, though, so much and think so highly of it? Because it's the inspired word of God. And God chose to communicate to us by language. Where do we find his message? Well, we can see someone learn something about him in creation. But if we want to know specifically what he's done and what he will do and about his son, Jesus Christ, it has to be from the word of God today. So we don't worship the Bible, but we want to read it. We want to know its message. And the Bible contains that message. And that's why we value it so much. And so the man in Psalm 119, just like the man in Psalm 1, meditates on the word. Now, when we talk about meditating, he didn't just say hears it or reads it, by the way. Now think about this with me. If you're in the Hebrew times and someone says meditate on the word, you don't say, oh, okay, let me get that U version up here. No, they didn't have that back then. You know what? They didn't even have a book back then. They had the word of God in Hebrew written on scrolls that they put in a special box in the synagogue. And if you wanted to hear the word of God, you had to go to synagogue. And if you wanted to meditate on it, what did you have to do? You had to memorize it. Same thing in the New Testament. The, the, the scriptures were written on scrolls, and so people didn't have their own personal scrolls. 
because it took so it was so hard to copy those things it was it was that's what the scribes did it was a science and it meticulously copied so they kept the scrolls in a special place and they would be read on the sabbath or on special occasions but you didn't have a copy of the bible on you so how did you meditate in it you had to memorize it you had to know it by constant repetition and listening they could memorize the word of god a good Muslim has memorized the Koran, and many of them have memorized much of it. So the idea of meditation, when we really appreciate it, it starts with hearing or reading, and it can involve studying it in detail and digesting it, internalizing it, and all of that might be a part of meditation. The word that's used in the Hebrew for meditation kind of has the idea of mumbling to yourself something like that so what it's it, you're, you're processing your thoughts and the information digesting it and it implies you also apply it and live by it you know they say a cow has three stomachs well i looked that up this morning because i was suspicious of that and it says a cow has one stomach with four compartments now you know because i read it online the first stomach is called the rumen. It's the real big one. And that's where they eat the grass and it's stored there. And I don't know, I didn't get very far in the article. The second stomach evidently starts to digest that because they regurgitate and they start to digest that rumen, that what's ever in the rumen. So when it comes to the word of God, it's not just taking it and hearing it or reading it, but okay, now what are you going to do with it? Let's start digesting it. Let's think about that. How does that apply to my life? What does he mean by this word? We bombard it. You know the, what Bible study is. You bombard it with questions and observations until you get the meaning, and then you take the meaning, and then you apply it to your life for the deepest sense of it. So the idea of meditation is quite a serious approach to the word of God. And he says he did it, uh, he meditates in it day and night. It's constantly, when you memorize something, it's with you. So you can meditate on it day and night. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't want to turn your light on or irritate your wife or husband, so you've got to go over the scripture that you've memorized. You meditate on it day and night. It engulfs your life. That kind of approach to the Word of God really is a part of what the New Testament would call disciple. Romans, uh, John eight thirty one says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. The idea of abiding is to have a very close relationship to something, to continue in it, to remain in it, and to follow it, not just to believe it. So if you abide in the word of God, that's a requirement, a condition to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. Not salvation, but a follower of Jesus Christ. Now some people say, well, what about versions? What version should I read or study or memorize? Well, it's really up to you, but frankly, uh, I think it's better to memorize something that's closer to the original, and that means a more literal translation. Um, I, I use the New King James Version because it's a very, it brings me real close to the original language. The NASB will bring you very close to the original language. You start to get a little, and the ESV is considered a good translation, except it has a lot of Calvinistic influence in it, which I don't like. 
but it's a good translation otherwise. The NIV is a good, but it starts to get into more of an interpretation paraphrase. And then you get things like the Living New Testament and so forth, which might help you understand the scripture, but it's very loose language and it really doesn't teach you much about uh, the words that are used. So in your study, you should have different versions that you look at, a literal version. And if you don't understand it, maybe it's you'll get some help from a paraphrase. But if I was going to take the time and trouble to memorize something, and I don't want to memorize it in the Greek or Hebrew, I'd get the one as close as I could to the Greek or Hebrew. So let me just answer it that way. I use the New King James Version. The Old King James Version is what I studied uh, all through my Bible college years, for example. Now I pick it up and I can hardly even read it. It's how they spoke 400 years ago. And that's not how I talk today, so I have a lot of difficulty understanding it. And when you're when you're meditating on the scriptures and when you're thinking about them, uh, you'll probably have more questions than you'll have answers. Uh, you, you'll ask questions and, and you know, I'm, uh, I, I don't know, I just arbitrarily decided to read First and Second Samuel a month or so ago. And so I started it chapter a day and because um, I hadn't been there a long time, not that arbitrary. I hadn't been in that part of the Old Testament for a long time. So I started going through it. And, you know, I studied the Bible quite a bit in Bible college and seminary, and I'm going through this, and I'm thinking, wow, I never saw this before. David did that. He's sparing this guy, showing him grace, and then he's telling him to go murder people over here. He's taking a man's wife. He's taking several wives. What's going on there? I had more questions than I've ever had about that, and I don't know that I got them answered, but it, it fed my appetite to go get them answered. We approach the Word of God seriously like this because it's like no other book. It's inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration literally means God breathed. The New Testament, the Old Testament, is God breathed. It's His words breathed out through authors using their personality and circumstances to give us His message. And it has a supernatural nature because of that. Unlike Shakespeare, a great writer, C.S. Lewis, a great writer, um, John Grisham, great mystery thriller writer, Francine Rivers, I don't know why her name is in my head, but she writes something, people read her. They're good, but they're not inspired. The only place to find the inspired word of God is in our Bibles. Keep it at the core of your reading. I'm not saying don't read Francine Rivers or C.S. Lewis. Absolutely read them. Read widely. But keep the Bible at the core of your reading. And if you can, memorize it. I say if you can because it gets harder the older you are. That's why it's great to have the Iwana Club and kids memorize it. And I memorized a lot of it when I was a child and when I was young and when I was in Bible college. But you know what? I have trouble doing it now, frankly. And a lot of it's leaked out. So my New Year's resolution last January was to memorize First John, five chapters. I only got through two and a half chapters, I think, in June. And I got busy, and I just kind of. So do I feel guilty? Do I feel bad? No, I memorized two and a half chapters of First John. That's great. So it's all right. To, it's all right to fail, but set goals for yourself. Do we need any better reason to meditate on the Word of God than the fact that it's His message to us? So. There are two choices here. We can, we can accompany, be accompanied in the company of evil people, but we should distance ourselves from them. 
or we can stay close to God's word. And there are results of either choice that we might make. And here's the results. For the ungodly, first of all, he mentions in verse 3 a result, and then in verses 4 and 5, I'm sorry, for the godly in verse 3 and for the ungodly in verses 4 and 5. Now, for the godly, what's the result? Wonderful. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which brings forth. You, know, you notice me doing this? I can't recite Psalm 1 without doing that. Here's why. Because when my family was young, we memorized Psalm 1 together. And uh, we did it after dinner, and we, they, were, they were young, so we used hand signals. So, uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of sinners, no, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which brings forth his fruit, and its season, its leaf does not wither. And everything he does, he prospers. Wicked or not so. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can memorize scripture that way, <laughs> right? That's why you see me doing hand signals when I'm reading Psalm 1, even today. <laughs> they shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Now, you realize that Israel and much of that Middle Eastern territory is very arid if you've been there or seen pictures. But you have the Jordan River, and up north you have a little bit more water, and now and then you have a wadi or stream that runs through it. And by those places you'll find the greenery, or you'll find the taller trees. Even if you were to go out west here, in some of our western states, you'll find the rivers running through the, the high plains or something, and it's pretty barren, except along those rivers will be the giant cottonwood trees, sycamore trees. Because trees need water to prosper. And those who stay close to God's word are like the trees that are being uh, watered constantly, constant nourishment so that they can live a fruitful life, a life of purpose, a life, life of usefulness, a life of happiness or blessing and it brings forth its fruit and its leaf doesn't wither because it's got a constant source of nourishment the person who is close to God's word will not wither in a season of COVID will not wither in the face of financial difficulty will not wither when someone criticizes them or mocks their Christianity. The person who is firmly planted by streams of water has an inner strength that maybe no one will ever understand. And it is their constant source so that whatever he does shall prosper. doesn't mean he wins the lottery. It just means spiritually he comes out on top. Somebody who's close to the word of God, you cannot keep them down. You cannot truly discourage them no matter what the circumstances are i could tell you case after case of situations even right now where people are facing the hardest circumstances in life but because of god's word and their familiarity with it they're prospering they have hope they're not giving up they're not despairing you know when you're just feeling like the whole world's against you or everything's going wrong 
where, where are you going to get encouragement and strength? From a friend, maybe. But how permanent would that be? You know, when I open the Scriptures and I see a promise in the Psalms, I love to go to the Psalms when I'm feeling that way, it strengthens me with an eternal promise or an eternal truth that can never be taken away upon which I can build my life. That's what it's talking about. Someone who's close to God's Word and immersed in it, a godly person, is going to always prosper and come out on top spiritually. It reminds us of the promise in Joshua 1.8 that Moses preached to the people before they went into the promised land, before they crossed the river into Jordan. He was giving them this as kind of some advice and warning as well. There are others' warnings, but this is the advice. He says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Sounds similar, doesn't it? It was important to Moses, and he thought it would be important to his people who would face all kinds of trials in the promised land. The results for the wicked who have distanced themselves from God's word, who have rejected God's word, is quite different. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. You know what chaff is? It's the part of the wheat that's useless. When you have wheat, the only thing that's useful is the kernel. So the straw, the stem, the leaves, and the coating on the kernel is chaff. And so in the ancient days, in some cultures today, I've seen it done, they'll beat the wheat with something to loosen it all up, throw it into the air, and the wind blows. If you're on a high location, on a windy day, the wind blows the chaff away, and the wheat falls to the ground, the useful part. So chaff here signifies that which is useless, temporary, waste. An ungodly person who rejects the word of God is like that chaff, drifting through life with no purpose, wasting this wonderful thing called life that God has given to us. Now, their end is they will not stand in the judgment or in the congregation of the righteous. What does that mean? They have no standing. They have no grounds. They have no, no plea. Romans 3.19 says, All the world be, will be shut up before him. Their mouths will be shut. So the wicked will have no basis for vindication before God's judgment. And then verse 6 is kind of a summary of everything. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. When it says the Lord knows here, it's not just talking about a cognitive function or knowledge of who's righteous, but the word implies, or it actually means to, to watch over or guard. So the Lord is guarding, I'm sorry, the Lord is watching over godly people. He knows your way, and he's mindful of it, and he's taking care of you. That's the idea of that. But the way of the ungodly will perish. Because they've rejected God, God has to reject them. Because they've, they're not interested in heaven, it would be misery for them to be there. God sends them to another place where they perish in eternity. So how do we have a happy life? We immerse ourselves in God's word. 
How do we do that? Well, we don't have to go to synagogue and, let, and open the scrolls. It's never been more convenient for God's people or anyone in this world today to have the Word of God. I say that as an American. There are places in the Word of God, in the Bible, in the, in the world that do not have the Word of God. There are places where people do not have Bibles. And I'm involved with a lot of Bible distribution in different ways, in different places. But look, we've got it right here. And you can even listen to it while you're driving. Don't try to read it while you're driving. You listen to it while you're driving. You've got it on a million computer programs. You've got it dozens and dozens of versions. How blessed we are to have those options today when other people are writing me every week asking for Bibles. It's too expensive to ship them Bibles. It costs more than the Bible to ship these Bibles these days because everything's by air. But take what you have and make it a habit. Make a commitment. There's, you don't have to make a New Year's resolution. I don't know what you want to call it. I might just get frustrated by making resolutions. Just take the Bible guide that's in your bulletin today and start there. You don't have to read the Bible in one year. That's a one-year plan. You can read it in two years. You can go online and find a 10-year plan. I started looking online for Bible plans. I found, wow, there's so many of them. I just put one there as a suggestion. If you've never really read the Bible all the way through, I challenge you to do that. And there'll be places where God will just stop you and say, oh, wait a minute, think about that. You might not get as far as you want to, but that's great because now you've got something to meditate on. Instead of just flying through it, you can meditate and think about what he's written and what you're reading. God's word brings blessing to life. And a life that is close to God's word will always prosper and never be defeated because it will understand the power and the blessings that God has given to us. We will have the wisdom to, to maneuver and manage life the way that God wants us to. Read it. Meditate on it. Live it. If you don't know where to start, don't start in Revelation. <laughs> you know why people don't understand Revelation when they read it? Because they haven't read the Old Testament yet. You know there are over 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. It's all based on the Old Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament, you're not going to understand Revelation. If you have under read the Old Testament, you're still not going to understand Revelation <laughs> without good Bible teachers like Jairus going through it today. Start at Genesis if you want, but if you know if you never really read the Bible, you're not sure about your eternal life, why don't you start in the book of John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament? That's what I would suggest. Or read the life of Christ starting in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's a lot of different things you can do, but just read the Bible. You want to have a happy new year? Read the Bible. You want to prosper in adversity? Pick up the Bible. Do you want to live a godly life? Meditate on the Word of God. Do you want to avoid evil and going down a, a wrong path? Let God's Word direct you. Do you want to make an investment in your eternity? Let God's Word feed you and help you grow. You know, Psalm 1 shows us that there's really that great division between those who are godly and on a godly path and those who are not. Those on the godly path are close to God's word. They stay far from evil. 
Those who are not have rejected God and could care less about his word. And they don't read it, they don't care, they even mock it and deride it. But they don't have any, any idea of their destiny, their destiny which is described here in Psalm 1 as perishing, being out of God's presence for eternity. And that's why we share the gospel with them. And that's why we remind you today that there is a way that the Bible tells us we can know him, and it is through Jesus Christ, his son. And because his son came and paid the price for our sins and took the penalty and the wrath of God upon him himself because of the things that we have done, we unfairly can have eternal life as a free gift, absolutely free. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and paid the price to satisfy God's justice. And then he rose from the dead, so he's a living Savior, and he can make that promise to us today that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life, life that never ends. It's as simple as that, so simple that many miss it. But that's the message of the Bible. That's God's love letter to us that we ought to crave and want to read. Let me just close by saying, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning when I was talking about ministry, but our, down, our podcast is Simply by Grace. If you look up on your pod, podcast platforms, whatever it is, Simply by Grace, you'll find us. We have over 44,000 downloads now, 151 episodes, 152, I think, Thursday. Which I, you ought to listen to Thursdays. It drops Thursday. Brian is a fellow I met when I taught at New Tribes Mission School up in Michigan and um, kind of kept in touch with him since. And I met, uh, well, I haven't seen him for a long time, but I've talked to him recently because uh, I was reminded. And I wanted to get his story on our podcast. We have a series called Grace Stories, and he tells his story. I titled the story, I Smoked the Book of Proverbs. You see, Brian was born on the wrong side of the tracks, grew up with the wrong people, went into a life of crime and eventually a life of drugs. He landed a six-year prison sentence. He served two years, and miraculously, you'll have to let him tell the story, miraculously, he got out of prison after two years and straight into missions training. And now, just a few days ago, uh, he, had, he's, he landed in Senegal again. He just finished a home assignment for beginning his second term in Senegal, West Africa. In my interview with him, he said, when the Gideons would come, he would get as many Bibles as he could from them because they give out free Bibles to the prisoners. And uh, he said, we loved the Bibles be because you could, the paper was thin and you could roll whatever you're smoking in. I said, well, what were you smoking? He said, whatever we could get. <laughs> yeah, weed too. You can get anything in prison, he said. And he said, I smoked the whole book of Proverbs. <laughs> Not many of us can say that. But you know what? Instead of smoking it, one day he picked it up and started reading it. And he got saved in prison. And then God began to change his life. He's a missionary today in West Africa. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the life-changing power of the Word of God. And what a privilege it is that we can have that today. 
so convenient, so easy and accessible to us. Help us to develop that habit of being in the Word of God and being close to it and just picking it up and reading it. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who is wondering where they're going to spend eternity and doesn't want to perish in darkness, out of God's presence, I pray that they understood the message of Jesus Christ and his salvation and would trust in him today for that eternal life. Lord, just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve to perish, but I'm asking you for the gift of eternal life because I believe Jesus loves me and died for me and rose from the dead and gives me eternal life, absolutely free, free gift. So, Lord, grant us the grace to be close to your word and change us by it that we might be more like our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.